The one thing that I noticed that the pastor pointed out and something that we came up with together as we were sitting and talking in the office and praying about how we should go about this thing is this. The entire goal of the sanctuary is to show how we are saved. Am I right about that? It's just showing us how we are saved and to show us the way to God. Now, take a brief look at this model right here. I know you can barely see it, and you've seen it many times before. The sanctuary, by the way, is my favorite doctrine. I get excited when I hear about it because everything in the sanctuary, down to each very little minute detail, is all about Jesus. And I think sometimes in Adventism, especially in, you know, well, especially in Adventism, we tend to focus a lot on truth and doctrine and law and prophecy, but we end up neglecting the most fundamental point of our belief, which is Jesus Christ. If we do not have Jesus, we have nothing. If you look at this sanctuary model, notice what the priest does. He first goes into that uh, first east gate. He walks in, and then he first meets up at the brazen altar there. You heard about that last week. After that, he moves to the laver, and then he goes inside the holy place, and then he moves into the most holy place where the Shekinah glory and the presence of God is. The entire point of the sanctuary service is to get us as close to God as we can possibly get. Am I right about that? And let me give you just a piece of advice, brothers and sisters. The measure of success in this world is not how much money you have in the bank. It is not about the car that you drive. It's not about the career that you ascertain in life, nor is it who you become in this life. The measure of success when it comes to Christianity is much more defined by who you become in Christ Jesus. The success that you have in life is only defined by how close you get to God. The Bible is very clear that one day Michael will stand up and he will say, he that is filthy... Let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. He who is unholy, let him be unholy still. The question will not be were you good or were you bad because at the end of the day, that's just moral or ethical or philosophical. That really has nothing to do with your salvation. At the end of the day, the question is, did you know Jesus at all? And if you did not know him, Jesus will pronounce over you the strongest indictment anywhere in Scripture, which is, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Let's go, let's go. Here we go. You look at the sanctuary service. If you were to map this thing out, actually, everything, every article of furniture maps itself out so that it actually looks like a cross. So you start with the brazen altar and then uh, the washing of the word, which is the labor, which we will talk about today. Uh, there is the uh, candlesticks there, the altar of incense right before the veil. And of course, there is the table of shoe bread and the Ark of the Covenant, which is behind uh, the veil in the Holy of Holies. OK, here we go. The labor, the labor. I'm getting excited now. Let's read this text one more time. Read this text one more time with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. What is it for? Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Have mercy. 
Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. Now, here's some key points for the sanctuary that you have to know whenever you study the sanctuary. Each and every detail about the sanctuary, every article of furniture, everything has five important points that you have to discover if you want to understand the symbolic meaning behind everything in the sanctuary. The first thing is the position of any article of furniture. Well, where is it in the sanctuary? Why is it placed there? Our God is a God of order. He never does anything arbitrarily. Whatever he does, it's always for a specific reason or for a specific purpose. Then we have the prefabrication. That's just a fancy word of saying what it's made of. I was trying to keep the alliteration of P in there, so work with me for a moment. Anyway, prefabrication, which means what is it made of? Is it made of wood? Some things in the sanctuary were made of gold. Some things were made of bronze. We'll discover that in a moment. The purpose of it. What is its function? Why do we have it in the first place? It's not just there just to be there. There has to be a reason why it is there. The proportions, which is basically the dimensions of it. Everything that God told the people of Israel to build had specific dimensions to it. He said, I want it five feet long, ten feet high, ten feet wide. Every single time. And he wanted them not to neglect to go away from that at any point or at any time. The portion, which basically means the quantity. How long was this thing used? How much was it used? How much was it used given in a given year, a day, or a month? How much time was spent with this particular article of furniture? Now here we're going to discover the labor, the position of it, the position. Here we go, here we go. The labor now in Exodus 30 verse 18 is where? Between the tent of meeting and the altar. It's right in the middle, smack dab in between the two. So after the priest has finished taking the bull or the goat or the lamb or whatever it is that the Israelite has brought, he takes that lamb or that goat, he kills that thing and sprinkles the blood on the altar, and then he moves immediately to the laver. And the Bible says he is supposed to wash there because if he goes into the sanctuary without washing, he will die. Position is very important. Here we go. What's the purpose of it? Well, obviously, it's for washing. And because of that, they put water inside of this laver. Okay? Turn with me to John 13, verse 1 through 10. John 13, 1 through 10. It's all right if we look through at a few scriptures. Amen? John 13, verses 1 through 10. God told Moses, make this laver so that they can wash in it. And from time to time, or actually every day, as soon as the priest would leave the altar, he would move immediately to that laver and begin to wash himself. He would wash his hands and begin to wash his feet as well. And that points us back to a particular point in history in the New Testament in John chapter 13, which is our ordinance of what? Communion. Let's look at it quickly. John 13 verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, 
Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later, Peter, you, you, you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Get this. Then Lord Simon and Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one of them was clean. Here's something we have to understand about the time period or the context of this passage. The hygiene during that time was not as valued as it is for us today. But the people would wash and they would bathe themselves before they went out to a party or to a feast or to a wedding gathering or a wedding reception or anything of that nature. They would wash themselves. But wherever they went, it was a custom for a servant to be there so that when they got inside the house, they would wash their feet all over again. The fact is, they were clean before they left the house, but as they were traveling, they usually would pick up dust from along the journey. And so when they got to the house, there was a servant or a slave there who would do just as Jesus did, get up, wrap a towel around their waist, provide a basin, and then wash their feet just to wash away the dust from it. And so Jesus began to do this, and Simon says, Jesus, no, this is a servant's job. I, I don't want you to do this. You are the Messiah. You are Christ. You are royalty. I do not want you to do this for me. Jesus said, unless I do this, Brother Peter, you have no part with me at all. Simon then replies, well, then Jesus, wash me, complete me, wash me all over again. But then Jesus says something interesting. Peter, you are already washed. And for somebody who is already washed, all that leaves, therefore, is for me to wash their feet. Now, that has perfect implications for us today as Christians, because one of the things that I realize is that we are very much afraid of saying that we are washed or saying that we are saved, especially amongst Adventists. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something right now. At this point in my life, on this day, at this moment in time, I am saved. There is no doubt about that. I am saved. No, 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 no. I don't think you get it. You are saved right now in this moment. And we are afraid to admit that. And if you are afraid to admit that, then you are automatically limiting what Jesus has done on the cross for your sins. You do not believe it. And so when you sing there is power in the blood, you don't even believe that. We are saved right now. And I can say that. In fact, Ellen White even says that when Christ died on the cross and he hung his head and he said that word in Greek, tetelestai, or he said, it is finished or it is completed. At that moment, she says the death knell for Satan was wrong. At that point in history, Satan was defeated from that moment. And the destruction of the kingdom of Satan was made certain at that moment. And so right now, we can claim what John 3.16 says, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You need to be able to claim today that you are saved. The Bible says whosoever, no matter what. And why is it do we have a problem with Scripture? 
God says if we believe in him, we are saved. And I think the problem is, especially amongst Adventists, I don't mean to beat up on anybody, but I have to tell the truth today. We like to accept people in and then build a wall that they have to climb over before they can get to Jesus. And sometimes we make mountains out of molehills. And some of the things that we care about, God does not care about at all. Why do we make issues about jewelry? Why are we so concerned with short skirts and baggy pants? If they are in the church, if they are learning, if it is truly important to God, God will convict them of it. But at the moment that they come into the church, at the moment that they accept Christ, they are saved. Just trying to beat this nail over the head real quick. Now, in the sanctuary service, as the pastor told you last week, when an Israelite would take that bull and they would take it to the altar, they would have to place their hand on that goat or on that lamb. Am I right? Look at square between the eyes and take out a jagged edge knife and slit its throat. All the while they can hear this beast bleeding out and screaming in agony and watching the blood flow down, watching it die to typify the death of Jesus Christ. And at the moment that they release that animal to the priest, they are saved at that point because the sin from them is transferred to this beast. Am I right about that? And then as the priest takes the blood and begins to sprinkle it on the altar, the sin is now not only transferred from the person to the animal, but now it's transferred from the animal to the blood, and there's power in the blood. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so when the priest begins to take his hands and dip it in the blood, now the, the sin is transferred not from the person to the animal, and not from the animal to the blood, but now to the animal from the blood to the priest. And the Bible says that Christ, who is our priest, became sin for us. He became that for us. And at that moment when he died on the cross, I need you to get this, we are saved. And so the Israelite, even at the gate of the sanctuary, knew that his sins were taken care of and he could walk away in confidence. Just getting started here. Just getting started. We're washed. We're saved. Amen? I think the problem is that uh, from time to time, we pick up dust along the journey. But picking up dust does not mean that we have somehow lost our salvation. When we accept Christ, and I think I've said this before, we are literally fenced in in grace. We're fenced in. Bite. And so even when we fall trying to do right, we fall in grace. We trip in grace. We mess up in grace. So much so that the Bible says that where our sin abounds, grace does that much more abound. And so there is almost virtually nothing that we can do except for our decision not to be with God that could cause us to lose our salvation. And let me give you a point right now. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I don't care. Let's go. If any of us are lost, it will not be deception. It will be decision. <clears throat> if any of us are lost, 
we will choose to be lost. Nobody will be tricked into it. The Bible even says that if it were so, even the very elect should be deceived. But the Bible says that because they will not be deceived. Everybody will have a chance to choose for themselves whether they want to be with the Lord or not. In fact, Ellen White goes so far as to say that some people, if God were to save them, they would be a discordant note in the melody of heaven. Some people would not even enjoy heaven at all because they do not choose God. So God will neither force anybody or trick anybody. And the devil really has no power to cause you to be lost except you make the decision to choose him. Y'all don't believe me. So we pick up dust from the journey, but that's all right. Because the Bible says if we just confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Am I right? Here we go. Prefabrication. What is it made of? What is this labor made out of? That's what we're talking about today. The labor. It says that in Exodus 38.8, this is very important. They made the bronze basin and the stand from the mirrors of the woman who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they also made the bronze basin out of a bronze stand. So there's two things. This basin is made out of bronze. And in the Bible, bronze usually typifies and symbolizes judgment. But also, they made this basin out of mirrors. They made it out of mirrors. Hmm. The portion, the portion. How often did they use it? Whenever, what did I say? Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. So whenever they decided to go into the tent of meeting, and the priest would usually go in every single day, they had to wash themselves or they would die. And understand something, brothers and sisters. The sanctuary was so holy that I have read in places that sometimes the priest would not even sleep the night before he was issued to go into the sanctuary for fear that he would have a bad dream. And that thought would be brought back into his mind while he was in the sanctuary and he would drop dead. Usually they would tie bells to the bottom of his garment and tie a rope to his ankles so that if they heard the bells stop ringing, it meant that he had somehow neglected to confess his sins or he had gone in in a sinful mindset or a sinful state. And if they did not hear the bells ringing, it meant that he had dropped dead. And because nobody else could go in, they would drag his body out. Hmm. Holy. So get this scene. Look at this picture. The labor, the labor. After the priest would finish uh, what his job description at the altar, he would go to this labor. And he would have blood spattered all over his hands and all over his feet. And he would go to this laver and stick his hands in and wash his hands. But he would also be looking into this bronze basin, which, mind you, again, is made of what? Mirrors and of bronze. He's looking in and seeing himself for what he really is. <laughs> oh, God. And he washes his hands and he begins to wash his feet. Here's something I discovered this week. He's doing some research trying to figure out where these mirrors came from. And I came across this. Spectrophobia. Spectrophobia. Spectrophobia comes from the word specter, which is really another word for ghost. And we don't believe in that, right? Okay. <laughs> Spectrophobia. It is the fear of ghosts, the fear of mirrors, 
and also the fear of ever seeing one's own reflection. And there are literally people in the world today who are deathly afraid of walking past a reflective window, even anywhere out in the world, and seeing their own reflection. There are people who are ridiculously afraid of walking in front of a mirror and somehow just catching a glimpse of what they look like. Spectrophobia. They cannot stand it. I discovered in the Christian church that we have spiritual spectrophobia as well. We are much better at being mirrors than looking into the mirror ourselves. <clears throat> we are very good at pointing out other people's flaws and sins. <clears throat> but we are not so good at being introspective about our spiritual lives at all. <clears throat> we have no problem letting people know what's wrong with them and what we believe. But at the end of the day, we are very much afraid of going to the mirror ourselves and seeing ourselves for what we really, truly are. Now, on the other hand of that, I might want to tell you today that you should be afraid of what you see in the mirror. Can I give you a secret, brothers and sisters? You ought not be afraid of the last days. You ought not be afraid of the world. You ought not be afraid of suffering or of circumstances or of sorrow in your life. And I dare say you ought not even be so much afraid of the devil himself. The one thing that you ought to be afraid of is you. I've discovered in my life the main hindrance from me getting close to God is not the world. It's me. It's my life. It's the stuff that usually I choose to do. God has given me a choice and I choose against him. We have a problem today of being afraid of the last days because we're afraid of the Antichrist. And we don't realize that the spirit of Antichrist could be in you. Because the more you choose against God, the more God gives you over to what you really want. And I would go so far as to say some of us don't even know ourselves. Have no idea who we are. We have no idea what beast lies within or what demons could rear themselves up at any given place. And let me give you this piece of information right now. Some of you are not as holy as you think. Because the fact of the matter is you just lack time, space, and opportunity. If you had the opportunity to do certain things, you would do them. The only reason you're not doing them is because you do not have the opportunity or the time or the space to do it. But in a fit of anger or in a fit of rage, if I was to place a gun in your hand, some of you would blow your neighbors away. You would stab somebody in the back. You would do some things you never thought you were capable of doing, some of the most heinous sins, because at the end of the day, you don't even know who you are. While we're messing around being afraid of the devil, so to speak, <laughs> and being afraid of the last days and what will happen in the end of time, we need to spend a whole lot of time working on ourselves.
told the young people last night, it's actually more beneficial for them to be able to define who they are not rather than who they are. Because who you are is actually a very fickle thing. Did you know that? It changes with the tide. And each and every one of us are very good on putting on masks from time to time to cover up who we really are. So we have a work mask and we have a school mask and a church mask and we put the church mask on when we want to feel more churchy. And given the environment that we're in or the people that we are around in our lives, we choose a different mask to put on our face so that nobody sees the real us. But if we would spend more time in God's word, which is our mirror, we would be able to define who we are not. And that's more important than who you are, brothers and sisters. And let me tell you why. Because who you are not are the non-negotiable, intangible things that you are not going to do no matter what. As I told the young people last week, many of our young girls and our young boys will get themselves into trouble in this world, mainly because A, they are too afraid, or B, they are too unwilling to define to the world what they are not. And because they don't know what they are not willing to do and what they should not do, they will ultimately do it. And so some smooth-talking guy will come around and be able to mess up a girl's mind and get her to do almost anything with her life because they don't know who they are not. And even more than that, even for us adults as well, we allow the world to define us more than God's word. And so whatever the media says about us, that's, that's, that's what we really are. Whatever other people say about us, that's what we become. And so our lives usually end up becoming self-fulfilling prophecies because we are so afraid. And more than that, we are ignorant of what God says we should not do, mainly because we do not know God's word. I'm talking to myself today. Here we go. Well, the Bible says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word of God. I studied as much as I could to try to figure out what this labor, what this washing basin represented. And all the scholars say the same thing. It has to represent the word of the living God. It has to. Because the word of God is our mirror for life. But what I know, and this is true, is that many church folk today do not know the Bible. We do not know God's word. What we know, we do not know scripture. What we know are particular scriptures. We know the nice promises that God will supply all of our needs according to our riches and glory. We know John 3.16. But we don't know the meat of God's word. We do not know it for ourselves. And so we can barely define who we are or tell other people who God really is. We have no idea what we are supposed to be doing because we hardly ever look inside this mirror. Okay. Here we go. It's from Ellen White. I'll read it to you. I know you can't see. Let those who feel inclined to make a high profession of holiness look into the mirror of God's holy law. As they see its far-reaching claims and understand its work as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, they will not boast of sinlessness. 
if we, says John, not separating himself from his brethren, say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. He is God, and his word is not in us. If, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me be clear about this thing. At the point where the Israelite gives that bull or that bullock to the priest and the priest uh, sprinkles the blood over the altar and he begins to move into the other parts of the sanctuary, that person is forgiven. And I believe at that point, that person is saved. But the one thing where we get confused at is we, it is not once saved always saved. You, no, 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 no. Do you understand that? It's not once saved, always saved. But the only way that you can be lost is if you choose to be lost. So the Bible says that this labor is really symbolic of God's word where the priest went daily in the sanctuary service and where we should go daily each and every day. If we do not go to God's word and wash ourselves from the dust that we have picked up along the journey in our Christian lives, we will be lost. If we don't look in this mirror and see how we really are in the world, because, you know, one thing I love about the Bible, the Bible does not cut corners. <laughs> if you're a sinner, it calls you a sinner. You are a wretch undone, the Bible says. And in fact, the Bible goes so far as to say we are born in sin and we are shaped in iniquity. Our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. Above all things, who can know it? Paul says the good that I want to do, I cannot do. And the bad that I don't want to do, that's the thing that I ultimately find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And some of us really and truly believe that we are okay and we're good and everything is hunky-dory, but at the end of the day, we really don't even know God for ourselves. And the Bible says daily we have to wash ourselves with this word. Daily we have to lap it up into our system. Daily we have to apply it to our circumstances and to our needs, or else we will ultimately choose against God. Okay, here we go, here we go. <clears throat> James chapter 1, James chapter 1. Turn there, turn there. James chapter 1, verse 22. <laughs> Bible says this, James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word. <laughs> And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. <laughs> Here we go. Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I've discovered is we, we're almost like crack addicts when it comes to church, man. And us pastors are really like crack dealers. We give you your fix. You go about your way for the rest of the week, and then you come back for your fix again. But the Bible says you not only ought to not come and just listen to the word, 
and deceive your own self. Because none of us will be deceived by the world or by Satan. You will deceive yourself. Do what the Bible says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who what? Looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Word of God is your mirror. There we go. Labor represents the word of God. It is our daily, what kind of? Daily, daily mirror. It is our daily judge. And it is our daily cleanser. Another quote from Ellen White. Steps to Christ. We may have flattered ourselves as Nicodemus. That our life has been upright. And that our moral character is somehow correct. And think that we need not humble the heart before God like the common sinner. But when the light from Christ shines into our souls, <laughs> we shall see how impure we really are. We shall discern the selfishness of motive, the enmity against God. This is some strong language that has defiled every act of our lives. And then we shall know that our own righteousness is indeed as filthy rags and that the blood of Christ alone can cleanse us from the defilement of sin and renew our hearts in his own likeness. I told you the main goal of the sanctuary is to get as close to God as we possibly can. Well, the Bible says that as the priest moves now from the brazen altar to the laver and he's about to go into the sanctuary, he's getting closer to the presence of God. But what Ellen White is telling us is that the closer we get to God, the more easily we see how messed up and sinful we really are. And so it's a telltale sign that you are not with the Lord if you are somewhere promoting yourself as some sinless creature. The Bible says the closer, the, the, she says the closer we get to him, we will see the selfishness of our motive. And the enmity against God that has defiled every act of life. And the truth of the matter is, if we were looking in God's word every single day, we would not worry about if we are doing enough for God. We would continually strive to do more and more, no matter how much we're doing. And so the priest moves from this altar and he goes and he looks at himself in this basin that is made of mirrors. He washes his hands and he washes his feet and then he, he sees himself in the mirror. And at that point, he has to acknowledge before God and all of the Israelites round about that he is a sinful creature. And if he does not do that, the Bible says if he gets anywhere close to God, he will die. What about the proportions of this thing? We're almost done. What about the dimensions of this basin? What does it mean for us? Well, here it is. There are no proportions. <laughs> there are no dimensions. Everything in the sanctuary, everything that God gave them was meticulously and specifically designed. 
every single article of furniture, with the exception of the labor, has dimensions that God has given them to build it, but the labor does not have it. The reason being is because the dimensions of God's word is limitless and boundless. And the word of God says about itself that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And we do not realize how much power is in the word of God. If some people would just open God's word and read it with an open mind, their lives would be changed. And what I hate to hear people say is people can't change, Pastor. That is a lie. And it is a lie from hell. Let me tell you why. If God made a man, God can change a man. If God created him and fashioned him in his own image and literally breathed the breath of life into him, then God can recreate a person as well so that they do not want to drink anymore. They do not want to smoke anymore. They are free from homosexuality. They are free from tithe stealing. They are free from adultery. They are free from fornication. And they are free from a sinful life. So what God is trying to tell us is that when we come to God's word, it is boundless and limitless. And I watch so many people in the world who struggle with their lives and are seeking prayer and are seeking counseling. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I declare today, if we would just look in the mirror, there is power in God's word. And we need to start with the man in the mirror. Oh, you know the song. Don't act like you don't know it. <laughs> no proportions given. Let me go back to this text quickly. Exodus 30, Exodus 30. <clears throat> Exodus 30, verse 17. Last time we'll read it and we're finished. The Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. And whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. <clears throat> Here it is, brothers and sisters. The temple is magnificently set up. The altar represents justification. And at the point where Jesus died, we are justified by faith. Amen. We are saved at that point. The next point is the labor. And that represents sanctification. Justification releases us from the penalty of sin. From the what of sin? The penalty of sin. We are no longer judged according to that. At that point when we accept Jesus, we are saved. Sanctification releases us from the power of sin. But it is a daily, daily struggle with God. Now, I have accepted God in my life. There's no doubt about that. I accept him and I love God. But I am not foolish enough to admit that I don't have a struggle with sin. Every day I struggle. Every day I struggle just to be a pastor, <laughs> let alone a Christian. Every day I deal with that. And so the Bible is making a very clear point in the sanctuary that every single day without fail, we have to go to this labor, which is God's word. Go to the living water 
and apply what it says to our lives. And if we miss one day, you know, there's a saying that says a verse a day will keep the devil away and all that kind of stuff. You can, put, you can apply it to your life if you want to. But at the end of the day, man, we need the word of God. Just as simple as that. And I remember there used to be a time when I was growing up where Adventists would be called people of the book. Am I right? It's almost as if we've gotten away from that. And some of the things that we actually say today are not even biblical. What are you talking about? It's not even biblical. Why, why, do you, why are you making that a big deal for somebody coming into the church? No, that's not even biblical. We need to get back to God's word. And one thing that my, my father always taught me about the Bible is this. He said, son, you can read the Bible backwards and forwards. and You can quote the scriptures and you can know each chapter and you can know the 2300 day prophecy and you can know the sanctuary and all this stuff. But brother, if you miss Jesus, you have missed the whole thing. You've missed it all. You, you, you cannot read God's word without having an experience with God. You cannot read it without bumping into something. And when you read it, the word of God defines who you should be. The rest is up to you to make the changes in your life as to what God wants to make you. So if you have any issues with anything, God tells you, just, just read the word. It's right here. There are principles outlined for us. There are words of wisdom for us. There is counsel for us. And there is even prophecy for us where God tells us what is going to happen in the last days. We know it. And at the end of the day, none of us, and I'm going to leave you here, none of us will have any excuse for being lost. There will be not one of us who will claim that God did not do enough to save us. It can never be said. And the truth of the matter is, there will be some people in heaven who we never thought would be in heaven. <laughs> and we're going to look around and see some people in hell that we never thought would be there either. My admonition to us today, take a good look at the man in the mirror. <laughs> Start there. One prayer that I, I begin to pray in my life as well is, like, you know, God, don't save me from the world. Save me from me. Don't save me from the world, God. The world has no power over me. The devil has no power over me unless I give it to him. Don't save me from the world, God. Save me from me. Because decisions that I would make in my life would carry me straight to hell. We are stained by sin, are we not? Hmm. Word of God is clear for us today. Go to the labor daily. Wash yourself with his word. Study what God says. Do not rely on the preacher for a good word every Sabbath. Because that's not his job. Do not rely on the preacher to be entertaining to you every Sabbath morning. Before you come into the building, you should already have a word implanted into your spirit. You should already have a relationship with God. You should already have a word to tell somebody else. You should already be encouraged before he ever stands up behind this pulpit. You should already know what you should have to do. The sermon should just be icing on the cake. 
I intentionally don't want to be deep today. We mess around and we get lost in the details of the sanctuary. It's a mystical thing. No, no, no. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his word. And if we don't take time to be self-examining of ourselves and to look introspectively, some of us are going to be lost. Let me just make one general appeal so I can sit down. If today in your heart, in your mind, you just want to say to God, God, today it's